I'm Kevin Moore and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined with Neil Donald Walsh, where we'll discuss his series of books, Conversations with God. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll be right back. Mr. Show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. Here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. We're about to be joined with our guest, Neil Donald Walsh. Well, just a bit of background on Neil. He's a modern-day spiritual messenger whose words continue to touch the world in profound ways. Following high school, Neil enrolled at the University of Wisconsin, but academic life could not hold his interest, and he dropped out of college after two years to follow an interest in radio broadcasting. He then became a radio station program director, a newspaper reporter, and ultimately managing editor and public information officer for one of the largest United States public school systems. Neil is now the author of the renowned Conversation with God series, and with the help of his wife, Nancy Fleming Walsh, created the Conversation with God Foundation. Neil, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's lovely to be here with you, and it's really very nice for you to have invited me. Um, Neil, um, where did all this start for you? Well, you know, way, way back now, about 15 years ago or so, I was moving through a very, very difficult time in my life when nothing was making any sense, uh, Kevin. My career had reached a dead end. My relationship with my significant other was falling apart. Even my health was going rapidly downhill. And I couldn't understand what was it that I didn't know about here. What was it that was making life so difficult? Why was life such a continuing struggle? What, what have I done to deserve that? And uh, one morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. It was a February morning, I, I recall. And I woke up uh, in, on a cold uh, midwinter morning, 
and and I realized that that I uh, I was furious. I was angry. I didn't understand what was going on in life, and I, I didn't um, I didn't want to go on anymore. To be honest with you, I was I was so done. So I asked God uh, in my mind, you know, what what is it that I don't understand here? Uh, about how this all works. And I found a yellow legal pad, happened to be, I don't know what it was doing there, but lying around on the coffee table in front of the couch. And I, so I picked up this yellow legal pad, and there was a, a pen alongside of it. Apparently someone was doing some, some writing of a list of something or another. And I began writing a very angry letter to God. It's now 4.20 in the morning. Yeah. I'm sitting in the darkened living room, and I'm writing this very angry letter to God. What does it take to make life work? What have I done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? Somebody tell me the rules. I'll play. Just tell me the rules. And uh, at at that point, I was furious, angry, and I remember saying in my head, uh, if you don't tell me something that makes this more clear, I'm out of here. And I, I meant it. I, I must confess that sure. I really meant it. I didn't want to play anymore. It was a game I didn't want to play anymore. Now, I really thought if I'm involved in some kind of game of the gods where you know there are some superior beings someplace just yeah. toying with humanity, I just don't want to play. Okay. It was, th- it was then, Kevin, that I heard a voice over my right shoulder. I heard a voice in the room as clearly as we're hearing each other's voice now, and that voice said to me, Are you ready? Are you ready yet? I, 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 you know, it, began, it began speaking to me. Do you really want answers to all these questions, or are you just venting? And that began an internal conversation, because that exterior... Of course, I looked around, there was no one there. I thought, my God, on top of everything else, I'm going daft. But, in fact, that voice, if you please, moved inside my head. It became what I call my voiceless voice, sounding like the voice of one's own thoughts. And I began having a dialogue with this, with this voice, if you will, and I would ask a question, write a question down on the paper, and before I finished writing the question, the answer would come to me as a whole. And I began uh, writing down the answer as if I was taking dictation. And then the answer would sponsor, in many cases, other questions, to which I would get an immediate answer, to which I would have another question. And before I knew it, I was involved in an on-paper dialogue, a, a conversation with God, what I wound up calling a conversation with God that wound up producing nine books in the Conversation with God series, 27 books in all. There are some secondary books that explain the first nine, but nine books in that initial series, of which six became New York Times bestsellers. So, I mean, how do you know you wasn't hallucinating? I mean, I mean, I think I you were know. just... That's a good question. It's yeah. a very fair question. And I may very well have been hallucinating. Yeah. And I, I asked God the question. I, I put it this way to God. How do I know this is not just my imagination? Sure. To which the answer was, what if it is? What, what way would you have me deal with you? How would you have me present my wisdom to you? If imagination is not okay, what is? Where do you suppose Michelangelo found the uh, incredible genius to create his art in the Sistine Chapel? Wasn't it through his imagination? Where do you suppose that uh, you know Bach created his wonderful music? How, you know, and he went through this whole list of people who brought extraordinary things to the earth, and he came back to say, isn't creativity an expression of imagination and isn't imagination an expression of divinity? Because if it isn't, then what is? So I, I let go of the idea that if I was imagining it, it wasn't okay. I let go of that idea. So, I mean, would you say your gift is just a, an, another gift, as a medium has a gift to connect to a spirit guide or, um, or, or, or look at auras, is, is this a gift that, that was given to you at birth that you've, you know, you're finally exposed as a, a way to communicate to the um, other side, if you want to call it that? I think it is a gift that we all have. In fact, I'm convinced of it, and I've been told that every human being is born with the ability to communicate with the source of all that is, to, to get in touch, if you please, with their own higher wisdom, the seat of the soul, as, as fellow author Gary Zukov calls it. So I have been told reliably that this is not something that I can do, and wouldn't it be nice if everybody else could, but since they can't, I guess I'll have to do it for all of humanity. It isn't that at all. It is, in fact, that every human being on the face of the earth is having a conversation with God all the time. They're simply calling it something else, women's yeah. intuition, a moment of serendipity, uh, an inspiration, creativity, uh, coincidence, whatever they want to call it, 
that allows them to get away with it because in our collective society it's not okay to say I'm speaking directly with God. Okay, but it's okay, by the way, to say, I shouldn't say that. It is okay to say I'm speaking directly with God. We call that prayer. What's not okay is to say that God's speaking directly with me. The the, the American comedian, um, Lily Tomlin, put it this way. She said, when I tell people that I pray to God every day, (laughs) they say I'm devout. When I tell people that God talks to me every day, they say that I'm daft. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that's true. That's true. And that's, that's just people's perception um, in, in general sometimes. But just going back to the question then, um, so, so you would say you're speaking to what you would call as, as God, but then what's, what's the difference then between a medium communicating with, uh, they call it a spirit guide, and you communicating with God? I mean, is it all the same source? Yes, there is only one source, and all people can perform that process or, or experience that process of communication. Every person has the ability to do that, uh, and no one person has more ability than another, although some people use more of it than another, but all of us have the self-same ability. And so uh, I'm saying to you, yes, there is only one source. You can call it God, you can call it angels, you can call it yeah. dearly departed souls, you can call it whatever you want. I do believe that um, the essence of life, which we call God, has individuated itself, or if you please, has... Um, caused itself to be differentiated, not divided, but differentiated into a a million, billion, gazillion different aspects of divinity. And I believe that we have the ability to communicate with every one of those aspects. So if someone were to say to me, Neil, do you think it's possible for a seer or a medium to communicate with a dearly departed soul? I would say yes, absolutely. Not only is it possible, it's been done over and over again. Okay. Okay. So we are, in essence, all from uh, one source. If you want, if you like, if we use that term right now, I suppose um, uh, we're all connected in, in the same way. Then, as from what you're saying, even as a even as a drop of the ocean is part of the ocean itself, it is no less a part of the ocean because it is merely one drop. It is no less a part of the ocean. So I use that analogy a lot, and people begin to get an understanding of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Indeed, that's true. Yeah. So as much as you're God, I'm God, if you wanted to analyze it like that, um, we're all God. Yes, everything, in fact, in life, all physicality is an aspect of the divine. Uh, I, I like to say that the physical world, the physical universe, if you please, is actually God-made physical. Okay, in, yeah, in, yeah. In, in a million, gazillion different ways. Uh, and in all of its wonderful parts. Now, some people would find that very difficult to swallow or even to accept or think of. You don't have to accept it. You don't have to think of it. If you find it difficult to swallow, then by all means don't swallow it. Stay with the belief system that is is um, more amenable to you, yeah. that with which you agree, and don't, don't, don't adopt my belief system for any reason whatsoever. However, look to see whether your belief system is working to produce a more harmonious world and a more pleasant and joyous life. If it is, then by all means stay with it. And for that matter, work hard to convince me of it. If it's not producing a world of peace and harmony, if it's not producing a life that is joyous and wondrous, then maybe you might want to ask a simple but profound question. Is there something I don't fully understand here about God and about life, the understanding of which would change everything? I've met people who um, um, would find it difficult to accept that, well, that they are God, and that that when they do pass on, that there's nothing higher than them. Well, I, as I said a moment ago, if they find it difficult to accept, okay. they should not accept. It's, no, no one, no one has to accept or embrace anything. Okay. That, 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 but, but you know, um, it's difficult when a person says, "I, you know, I can't say that I am God, or even a part of God." But when I ask people, the same person, would you say that you are an aspect and an expression of the divine? Often they say, yeah, I can go there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am an expression of the divine. So, so we're, we're really tinkering here with the language. It's simply a matter of semantics. I don't, I don't walk down the street and tell people, I am God. I don't wear a, a, a placard or a badge on my chest that says, I am God. But I do say to people, I and you and that flower over there and the night sky, all of this is an outpouring, an expression of the divine.
we are in that sense all aspects of divinity neither separated nor different from the whole except in measure even as a drop of the ocean is no is not separate nor different from the ocean except in measure that is a drop is a drop and the ocean is all the drops put together okay now do you hear the voice now is it a voice that's always with you or um how how's it work for you well it works the same way it works for everyone everyone is having a conversation with god all the time and we call it something else as i mentioned a moment ago so it works no different for me i get a bright idea driving down the road something occurs to me and wow what a great idea and in fact it was a good idea and if i act on it quickly and 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 uh firmly, yeah. I'm liable to turn it into a wonderful positive result as well. So my experience is the same experience as everyone else. I have moments of inspiration, moments of creativity, uh, and those moments of insight, moments of wisdom, moments of clarity. I believe that those are all ways in which the higher part of ourselves that has a direct connection with the rest of the ocean, if you will, yeah. uh, informs me of what the ocean itself knows about that. And so I go to that Again, uh, Gary Zukoff, the wonderful American author, wrote a book called The Seat of the Soul, in which he suggests that there is, the mind is capable of accessing that place within each of us of divine wisdom that he calls the seat of the soul. And I, I agree with that hypothesis. Okay. So, I mean, um, how, how many letters do you sort of get through a day, and how many oh, emails, and, and what sort of age group as well are contacting you? The demographics uh, are quite uh, broad. Uh, they're all age groups from 10 to to 90. I get letters from teenagers, from pre-teens, and, and letters from senior citizens quite regularly, and emails, mostly emails these days, uh, from all age groups and from every demographic, men and women, uh, black and white, gay and straight, uh, conservative and liberal politically. I just every every demographic you could think of. This is so widespread. The books have sold seven and a half million copies. They're translated into thirty-seven languages, and the mail and email that I get from around the world reflects a very broad demographic. It appears as if the conversations with God material has touched all people yeah. in virtually every human category. Yeah, I believe so. I, I, I know a lot of people have read the books, and myself, I, I've read all three books and uh, uh, was quite touched by them. And uh, indeed, I do believe that I was having a conversation with God when I was actually reading the books. So it was a profound effect, I, I must admit. Um, so, so you, just going back to the, uh, the, the 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 way your contact communicating. I mean, you you wouldn't say the writings from what what I would call your higher self, would you? Yes, I would. Oh, you would. Because okay. there's no difference between my higher self and that which I call divine. If my higher self is not that which I call divine, then what is it? Okay. I've already called it my higher self. So by definition, my higher self is the part of me that is aware of and have, has access to the higher source of wisdom that exists in the universe at large. So I think that my higher self is another way of saying the part of me which is directly connected to that which is divine. I like to think of it in this way, Kevin. I think we have what I call um, the mind voice and the soul voice. I think we have two voices. I think we have two voices talking with us all the time. Our mind is chattering all the time, and I think our soul is, is talking with us all the time as well. We tend to listen to mind chatter a great deal more than we listen to soul chatter. We don't tend to take, because soul chatter is a little bit harder to hear. It's a little bit more difficult to access. But I think it's going on all the time. And I think there are moments in life when we just shut our mind down for a moment and we think more deeply, we think more profoundly on a particular subject. Maybe we're confronted with a major problem. Some people do this through a process called prayer. Others do it through a process called meditation. Whatever you call it, we have the ability to escape the mind momentarily from time to time and go to what I call soul voice or to the soul space. That's the part of us that exists outside of the confinements of our mental constructions. But here's the difference, if I could explain as I experience it, Kevin. Our mental constructions are composed of all the data our mind has collected from the moments just before birth, even be- even before birth. The mind is active collecting data uh, about our environment and about our physical uh, experience. And that data is fed back to us whenever we encounter new data, as we do each and every day of our life. So when we encounter data, either through any one of our five sentence- senses, 
the the mind begins to compare that data with what it has collected through the years before. And it tells us all about that. This is a car. This is a street. Look both ways. Look left and right, etc., etc. And the mind is a brilliant, brilliant instrument. However, it has one limitation. It's limited to already collected or previously gathered data. It has that single limitation. Within the confines of that limitation, it's a marvelous instrument. The soul, on the other hand, is not limited by such constructions. The soul contains information, if you please, data, if you will, that is timeless, that is not necessarily limited by the incoming experiences that have been analyzed previously by the mind. The soul, therefore, is the part of us which is eternal. It lives forever and even forevermore. It always was, is now, and always will be. So the soul contains all the data from all the when-wheres of existence. The question is how to access that data. Well, I think people have ways of doing that, as I said. Poets have found ways of doing it. Artists have found ways of doing it. And so have ordinary people who don't do either of those two things. And they do it, as I said a minute ago, through prayer, through meditation, and through a variety of other means as well, listening to, to music, for instance, and so forth. So we come upon an interesting question. The question we come upon is, from whence cometh inspiration? Yeah. That's the question. From whence cometh creativity? Where did that come from? When we create something out of thin air, when we take a, a soft lead pencil and do a drawing on a piece of paper, or when an idea comes to us that solves a problem for us, or when we are inspired to do anything at all, the mind realizes that those thoughts have come from someplace else. Where is that coming from? Where is that? Where does wisdom come from? Surely not from the mind. The mind collects data, but wisdom is data applied, and that's a function of the soul. So um, would you say that, or would you believe that you're being used for a tool for mankind or uh, mankind's benefit or for any other end? I think we all are. Once again, every attempt to categorize, categorize me as something other than the rest of us okay. is going to meet a dead end, because I, I don't see myself in that way, except to the extent that we all are. Every human being sends a message to life, about life, through the process of life itself. That is, in fact, our purpose and our function. We are, we are gathering information about what it means to be human from, guess what, other humans. Hello! <laughs> So we're all teaching each other. We're all sending each other a message every moment of every day. Through the living of your life, we discover what it means to be human, as I do through the living of mine, and we demonstrate and show that to each other. Therefore, if you grow up in a loving environment where your family and your friends and your parents and your loved ones are all kind, gentle, and caring, guess what? You will become kind, gentle, and caring. If, on the other hand, you grow up in a different kind of environment, your actions on on the days of your life will reflect that environment as well. So life is a process that informs life through the process of life itself. Neil is not here to bring a message to all mankind. All of us are bringing that message every day in everything we th think, say, and do. Okay. If we understand that, we might act differently in public. What about illnesses and pain? I mean, is that is that something that's needed to as as part of the process of life? Uh, is it a gift? I mean, wh how would you class pain? Well, pain and suffering are not the same thing. Pain is pain, and suffering is a thought about it. Ask any woman who's given birth. I have been at the birth of many of my own children. I have nine children, and I, I birthed six of them. And I know what, is, what pain is, <clears throat> having observed it in the, in the mothers of those children. But no one was suffering. Suffering is a judgment uh, that the pain we're experiencing is not okay. I recall once, about 15 or 20 years ago, I had a terrible toothache, just a terrible toothache. It was getting worse through the day. Finally, I just called a dentist, and I said, you've got to take me, you've got to get me in there, you've got to get me in your chair. Even if you stay late, I'll give you any amount of money, just because toothache pain is one of the worst pains that human beings can experience. He said, come on right in. I went in. I waited my turn. I, my head was then throbbing to the point where I was ready to shoot myself. And the guy put me in the chair, and he uh, extracted the tooth. Well, it was a little bit painful for a moment, but I didn't, I didn't suffer. I said, you know what? Do it, man. Just do it. 
Mm. (laughs) It It was what I call welcome pain. So we have to understand that there are two kinds of pain, welcome pain and pain which is unwelcome. Pain which is unwelcome is simply pain which is not understood. That is, we don't understand why, we're, why we have to endure this pain. If we understand why we have to endure it, as a mother in childbirth, for instance, yes. the pain becomes not only tolerable, but in fact acceptable. In fact, I'll go one step further. Joyous. It's what I call joyous pain. And there's not a mother who's given birth who doesn't understand exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. So, so pain is pain, and suffering is a judgment that we have about it. The higher one is evolved emotionally and spiritually, the less one suffers, even though the amount of pain, physical and emotional, might not differ at all. Okay. So, so now, pain uh, and, the, and the emotional and, 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 and physical challenges of life are caused by our immersion in the physicalization of life itself. That is, we are uh, we find ourselves in a binary system, and uh, which is uh, fascinating because we are tripart beings. So tripart beings folding themselves into a binary system are necessarily unnaturally limited, and the result of unnatural limitation is what we call physical and emotional pain. That is my chemical definition yeah. or metaphysical definition, if you will, of yes. pain. The, the definition of emotional and physical pain is the constricting of a tripart being into a binary system. That is, we are body, mind, and spirit, but we, are, we, we insist on throwing ourselves into a binary system of left and right, up and down, here and there, before and after, good and bad, male and female, and so forth, fast and slow, big and small. Everything is binary in this system of physicality. Right, okay. But- Unless we look at it differently until we see that there is a third place in the system which we have not really heretofore seriously considered. There is here and there, and there is the space in between. There is fast and slow, and there is that that which is neither fast nor slow, but right in the middle. There is up and down, and then there is a place in the middle called, I'm not going up or down, Mm. I'm stationary. Mm. And so suddenly we begin to see that we live, in fact, within the three-part system. We simply don't view it that way. The insistence on viewing a tripart system as a binary system is what causes pain. <laughs> so, okay, and that's that's a that's a fantastic way of putting it, um, Neil. Um, but then, what 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 lessons would be learned from I don't know the, the passing of a young child? Um, obviously, there's a lot of pain there as such. I don't know that there's a lesson to be learned. Uh, conversations with God has made it very clear to me that things don't occur to us. Uh, in order for us to learn a lesson. Conversations with God made it very clear to me that we all come here already knowing everything we would seek to learn. Ah. Our, our process there is therefore not to learn anything, but simply to remember. That is to become members once again of the body of God. Or, in simple human terms, to remember who we really are. So it it it, is, it has been my observation and my experience that things occur to us as opportunities for us to announce and declare, express and fulfill, remember and become the next grandest version of who we really are. Or, to put it in simple language, we are God in the process of Godding. In all things that occur in our experience are created by us, for us, through us, in order that we might once more know ourselves as a totality of who we are. I'm going to say to you, Kevin, that most people have no understanding of what I'm now talking about experientially. That is, I've observed people uh, all over the world, and I can tell you that there are four fundamental questions that most people have never even asked, much less answered. And those questions are, one, who am I? Really and truly, who am I in the totality of my being? Am I simply just a human animal, no different from the tree or the grass or the sky, except that I'm in a different life in a different form? Am I just a biological being, or is there more than I am? Number two, where am I? What is this place that I'm in, this physical universe, this physical world, this planet for that matter? What is this place that I'm in? Where am I? Is there a larger kingdom of which this is a part, or is this the totality of it? Number three, why am I where I am? 
why am I in this particular physical environment? Whatever we call it, however we define it, why am I here? And number four, what am I trying to accomplish by being here as opposed to being somewhere else? What is what am I what am I doing? What am I up to? What what is the essence of who I am doing here? And and do you think the reason why people won't answer answer these questions is because they they live in fear? I think people don't answer these questions because number one they don't understand the questions themselves. They're okay. caught up in day to day life. Person person listening to this very interview might say, "Oh, this guy's daft. I got to get on with my life. I got I got a mortgage to pay. I got a phone bill to handle. I got work to do. I got stuff that has to happen. I got kids I have to raise. I can't get involved in esoteric crap like that." And unfortunately, it is those questions and the answers to them that create our ultimate experience of life or our failure to answer, much less address the questions that, it, that creates our experience of life, both individually and collectively on the earth. I'm here to suggest to you that there's more going on than meets the eye. Or as your wonderful Shakespeare put it, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Neil, we need to take a break there, so uh, everyone else stay tuned, and we'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk. Stop! 
You're listening to The Moore Show. And here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm currently joined here with our guest, Neil Donald Walsh, where we've been discussing his books, Conversations with God. Now, Neil, in your first book, you mentioned three things. One, there's enough. Two, there's nothing you have to do. And three, we're all one. Yes, those three uh, principles of life, the foundational principles of life, if they were embraced and adopted as functioning realities and not merely esoteric conceptualizations, but if we turn them into functioning realities, that is, if we embrace them in our systems of governance, in our systems of politics, in our systems of economics, in our systems of education, and in all of our social constructions and systems, if we adopted those three simple statements, the world would change overnight. There would be no more conflict. There'd be no more war. There'd be very little death by um, illness or disease that we cannot control. There'd be certainly no no such thing as starvation or insufficiency of any kind. Uh, Those things wouldn't exist. And when, when, when starvation, when insufficiency, when not enoughness is eliminated from the face of the earth, then anger goes with it. If you really look carefully at what people become angry enough about to create a war, it is the single aspect of insufficiency. We, you have more and we don't have enough. Well, of course, how can you blame some people for thinking that or for feeling that or for experiencing it when it is demonstrably true that 5% of the world's people control 95% of the world's wealth and resources? Such a system cannot hope to be self-sustaining over the long run. And by the long run, I don't mean a dozen years or even a hundred years, but several thousand years. Ultimately, across the span of time, humanity and collective beings everywhere will say, excuse me, it does not work for 5% of the people to hold 95% of the world's wealth and resources. It's simply not functional. And we're so mad about it. We're so angry about it that in fact we're going to do a thing called war. We're going to blow up buildings and, and, we're, going to, and we're going to you know create havoc wherever we can until you guys get it. Yeah. Some people are going to be a bit confused when we've mentioned there that there's, there's nothing we have to do. What do you mean by that? I mean exactly uh, what the statement says, and when you first read it, you really read it with the proper inflection, the right inflection. There's nothing you have to do. That is, there's nothing you're required to do, as opposed to saying there's nothing that you will do or can do or might choose to do. There's nothing you have to do. And to use an analogy, I like to think of the man who walks down the street uh, in a busy uh, metropolitan area, and he hears some uh, yells for help from a deep, deep, dark alley. And he looks into, he peers into the alleyway, and he sees that uh, two guys are... uh, hurting a third person. Maybe there's a rape going on or a robbery or some kind of a terrible thing happening. Now, there's nothing that he has to do. You don't, there's nothing you have to do in a situation like that. There is something you may choose to do, something you may want to do, or something you may choose not to do, for that matter, as we all know. The newspapers are replete with stories of people who view crimes and simply stand there aghast and do nothing about it. The newspapers are also filled with stories of heroes who step in and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, excuse me, no thank you. You can't do this with me standing here. But that person did not do anything he had to do. He did something that he chose to do. And why would he choose to do such a thing? Because that's who he experiences himself to be. Because at the root of it, his action was taken almost automatically, almost without thinking. So deep within him did it rise up, his expression of himself. He understood at some very deep level that wasn't thought through, but merely responded to, that he could not possibly stand there and watch this go on and not do anything about it, even at the risk of his own life. So would you call such people heroes? Sure, sure. Of course. So the point I'm I'm making in in the larger context of your question is, God says there's nothing you have to do which suddenly gives us the freedom to do what we would choose to do. 
as opposed to a society where there are things that you have to do. You have to go to church on Sunday. You have to pray the rosary three times a week. You have to go to confession. You have to avoid eating pork. You have to bow three times to the east five times a day. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to wear a burqa and not let anyone see anything but the slits of your eyes if you're a female in certain countries. You have to, you have to, you have to. But God says, no, 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 excuse me. What if you imagine the world in which you don't have to do anything? Then what you do do becomes a reflection of the true thought you have about yourself in your heart, rather than some rules that have been overlaid upon you by your society, by your religion, by your government, by your political party, or whoever else you imagine to have authority over you. Okay. So would you say then God, or if we want to call it the universe, doesn't care about what you do, it's why you do it. The universe doesn't even care why you do it. The universe, the job of the universe, if you please, if you want to personify it, the job of life is to provide you with the opportunity to decide and to declare, to express and to fulfill, to become and to experience the fullness of who you decide you are. You are in the process of self-creation. The miracle of life is that we have been given this experience in order to decide and then experience who we really are and by the way we do it every day yes am i a good person or a bad person am i a polite person or an impolite person am i a person who's genteel and has class or am i a slovenly slob who am i and we and we and we demonstrate our thought about ourselves by everything that we think say and do by the very words we use by the language that we choose to use by the actions that we take we're doing it every day often without knowing it people on the other hand who know exactly what they're doing have refined it to an art that causes others to see them as masters paramahansa yogananda the buddhist monk tiknat han the dalai lama and other people of various strata in the in the universe in the world of our experience who are very clear what they're doing here and understand that by everything that they eat and wear and say and speak by everything that they feel and think by every way they move through the world they are recreating themselves anew in the next grandest version of the greatest idea they ever held about who they are life for them becomes an extraordinary adventure and they couldn't imagine spending the days and times of their mental life worrying about the things that you and I worry about every day. Is she going to love me? Is she going to not like me? Will I get the job? Won't I get the job? Should I buy that car? Can I make enough money next week? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. See, yeah. the Dalai Lama doesn't think in those terms. You couldn't get the Dalai Lama to have a thought about that if you tried. Yeah. And he looks at the rest of us going, guys, do you have any idea what's going on here? So, and of course, the answer is, no, sir, we don't. <laughs> no, we say to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, no, we don't. Teach us. And so we go to masters like the Dalai Lama, and we say, teach us. And he comes to England, he comes to London, he comes to the United States, he sits for three hours and teaches us. We all go, wow, wasn't that interesting? He's totally right, he's totally right. Then we walk off, and by Wednesday, we've forgotten Sunday afternoon's lecture. And we're right back to the crap that we're doing. Yeah. Hello! Yeah. Yeah. So, Hello. So, so Earth what, to Neil. Earth to Neil. <laughs> no, it's tr it's right what you're saying, Neil. It, it really is. I feel it's right what you're saying. We're saying here really isn't. I mean, that, there's no lessons to learn here. It, it, it's to recreate ourselves anew and just and to to see ourselves in that next highest um, highest plane that we want to be in, that next highest position, that that next. I don't know the next job that we'd love to do. That whatever it is, it's is it on that path? Would you say? I think first we have to decide who we are. We have to decide who we are. We have to answer the four questions. Who am I? Yeah. Where am I? Yeah. Why am I? And what am I doing here? So, for instance, to run through that very quickly, I've decided that I am an aspect of divinity. I have decided that I am one aspect, a drop of the ocean, one aspect of divinity. That's who I am. Where am I? I am in a physical environment, a specialized environment that has been created by God itself to allow me to experience and express my divinity. Great. Why am I here? So that I can have that opportunity. So that I, can, I came here as opposed to staying over there on the other side. I came to this side of the veil in order that I might express and experience that through me as me in every single golden moment of now. Finally, the fourth question, what am I trying to accomplish? In relative terms, I am seeking to grow and to expand. By the way, anthropologists call this process evolution. 
It is what humanity is doing collectively through the individuated experiences of all of us. So if you wish, I am here to evolve into the next grandest expression of what I have always been. Like a tree that gets larger every day. You know, when that tree was a seedling, even before it was a seedling, when it was just a seed, it already knew everything it needed to know to become the giant sequoia that now stands outside of the National Park in California, the huge redwoods of California that have been there hundreds of years and rise hundreds of feet into the air and that are as wide at their base as a house. And those trees didn't know anything more yesterday than they did 400 years ago when they were seeds. Everything the tree needed to know was encoded into the seed itself. The tree, therefore, is simply in the process of becoming more and more of itself. Excuse me, I've just described the process of all of life. And if you think that you are different from a tree, it is simply because you don't understand. So, obviously, in your eyes, just to clear this up with our listeners... There is no death as such. It's just a, a transformation, uh, leaving this this plane to go go to the the next. That is right. We are eternal beings. We have always been. We are now, and we always will be. And we move in and out of what I call physicalization, coming into the physical reality, knowing everything we needed to know, even as the seedling knows everything it needs to know. We are born as the seedling called human. And we know everything we need to know to grow into and to express the fullness of who we really are. That is what every master has told us, each in their own words. It is what Jesus said in different words. It is what the Buddha said in his own languaging. It is what Muhammad said, what Moses said, what all the great spiritual teachers from the past and from the present say. Isn't it interesting that they all say the same thing? Hmm. Yes, indeed it is. Okay, so so um, why come here? Why why come to planet Earth to learn, to, to, to go through this experience? I mean, if we're all-knowing, we are creation in, in, in a sense. We are part of it, yeah? Why manifest into, into this tissue? Why, why come down, to, down here to uh, have this journey that we go on? Because, uh, precisely because we are all-knowing, And uh, that which we know about ourselves seeks to experience itself in its own expression of divinity. So we move between three realms, the realm of spirituality, the realm of physicality, and the realm of pure being. And in the realm of spirituality, we know, just as you said, all things. We know all things. We are all things, as a matter of fact. And, and, we are, and furthermore, we are all things simultaneously. That is, there is only one time and only one place called, in human language, here and now. So in the realm of the spiritual, we are always in here and now, with full knowledge of everything. And that's pure bliss. We might call that heaven. However, that which is heavenly seeks to know itself in its own experience. I shall give you an example. It's one thing for you, Kevin, to know yourself as loving. It's one thing for you, Kevin, to know yourself as compassionate, kind, caring, and generous, and humorous. You can know all those things about yourself, but if you have no opportunity to express it, that is, that is, if you're living all by yourself in a cave somewhere, all your good humor, all of your compassion, all of your patience, all of your love, for that matter, could very well go unexperienced. You need someone else in the cave. That's why we created physical life, to bring someone else into our experience, someone and something else. That is, God divided itself into a million, kajillion different parts that were made relative to themselves in different degrees of divinity. So that the person called Kevin could not only know that it is love, but could experience it through the expression of it and through the knowing of that which is not love. Because in the absence of that which you are not, that which you are, is not. Hence, That is, if there's nothing else but love, yeah, if there's yeah. nothing else but love, yeah. then love is not. Yeah, uh, and hence why we have um, opposites on this in this existence as well. I mean, you know, hot, cold, 
Exactly. Good, bad. Exactly. That's why yeah. the law of opposites, we've created that. So to answer your question, we've come into physicality. We have come upon the earth because we have created in this corner of the universe a perfect environment within which we can express through physicality what we have known ourselves to be in the realm of the absolute. I also call these two realms, not just the realm of the spiritual and the realm of the physical, but I also call them the realm of the absolute and the realm of the relative. We have come to the world, to the realm of the relative, so that we might have a world of experience. Therefore, judge not, and neither condemn, but be a light unto the darkness, that you might know who you really are. And... With, um, I mean, obviously uh, I've read your books and uh, it talks about uh, life on other planets. Um, what's, what's your views on uh, uh, life out there? And um, do, you think, do you think this is the hardest planet to come to to learn the hardest lessons? I'll answer the first part. Sure. Of course there's life on other planets. It's impossible for there not to be. There are billions and billions and billions of other planets. <laughs> and and for anyone to to begin to think that that physicality physical life has developed on only one of those many billions of planets would be just mathematically impossible. It's, 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 it's an it's a hysterical assumption. The, the the fact of the matter is that of those billions and billions of other places that there are in the known universe, the mathematical uh, equation shows us that there are probably many, 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 many countless places where life could exist just as it exists on the Earth yeah. or in some other form of sentient expression. Uh, and so, yes, I'm very clear that there is uh, intelligent life in the universe. Maybe not on the Earth, but, <laughs> but <laughs> elsewhere. And do you think we've been helped? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. I think that there are advanced civilizations, if you will, which have um, been looking at the progress that this somewhat primitive civilization has been making or not making, as the case may be, over the past several thousand years. And I do think that there are beings who have the ability to walk among us, if you will, and plant little seeds that um, bring us bits and pieces of information when the human mind has expanded sufficiently to embrace and accept them. Not too much too soon, mind you, so the whole experiment doesn't fall apart, but just the right information at just the right time so that this particular society that we call humanity can advance and move forward in its own evolution. Yes, I do think that there are people who are helping us, helpers among us. Yes. Yes, I, I think you're right there. And what do you do? You think that, that this is the hardest planet to sort of come to for a soul to come to to learn the the, the sort of lessons that are the quickest and the hardest. Do you think there's other planets out there where lessons are quite as hard as they seem to be down here sometimes? I don't know. Not having been to those places, I don't know, and I haven't formed a thought about that. I don't know whether this is the hardest one or what the medium range one or the easiest one. I mean, yeah. That's, a, it, that's an interesting question. I, I do know that, that life here, however, does not have to be as difficult as we are making it. I think we're making life here far more difficult than it needs to be. And we're doing so largely by our thought constructions that get in the way of our soul knowing. And so what we need, in my view, is a new cultural story, a new idea of not only what it means to be human, but what a human is to begin with. Yeah. We need to begin teaching our children who we are, where we are, why we are where we are, and what we're doing here. And we need to teach them the answers to those questions from a different base, from a different foundational base, not from traditional theology or, for that matter, traditional philosophy, but from a new point of view altogether, a heretofore not seriously considered idea of what it means to be human, of what life is all about, and of what this thing called divinity really is. That's why I think books like Conversations with God have such a remarkable impact on the world, because they offer the world's people, and millions of people have read these books, as I said, in 37 languages. They offer the world's people another idea about that. Is it the best idea? Is it the right idea? Is it the only idea? Is it the most accurate idea? I wouldn't say that. I would never make that claim. Is it another idea, an idea at least worth pondering and considering? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And and, and sort of diverting here a little bit as well. I mean, 
people that have been hurt or, or, or um, um, family members who, are, you know, who have had crimes committed against them, should they not forgive those who have, who have hurt them? And, and what advice would you, would you give them uh, if someone is listening to this that has been through a terrible time, how to forgive if they're stuck? Well, the answer to your first question, should they, um, I, I would say no. Uh, there are no shoulds in the universe. So there isn't something we should do or ought to do. Okay. The question might be more might might be more accurately phrased or more effectively phrased. Would it benefit them to forgive others? And the answer to that question would be yes, of course. Forgiveness is always beneficial, and never not beneficial. There is no single incident that I can think of in the whole of human history where forgiveness has not been beneficial. Forgiveness is always beneficial to the human soul because forgiveness is an expression of love. And the human soul is love itself personified. What I would say then to people who have undergone a ter terrible uh, experiences such as those you described and others is simply to invite them to step back from the experience itself and then to ask themselves a profound question. Who am I in relationship to this experience who are the other people who are involved in this experience in relationship to the experience itself? Why is this occurring? What has happened here? Yeah. And, and in the largest sense, what is, the, is there a larger purpose behind all of it? Okay, and, and with regards to karma as well, do you believe in karma, as in what you put out there you get back? So, you know, I mean, what's your thoughts on karma in, with regards to conversations with God? I'm told that there's no such thing as karma, that karma is another figment of human imagination, and that uh, it is not true that we have to keep coming back lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, somehow paying back a karmic debt, that karmic debt does not exist. But you really asked me two questions folded yeah. into one. Yeah. That you asked me, do I? What are my thoughts on karma? And then you asked me, do people experience the outcomes of, of what they do? The answer to the second question is, of course, what goes around comes around. So what you send out comes back to you inevitably, not because of some karmic system, but because of a much larger system of cause and effect in the universe. And that system must necessarily produce your experience of everything that you send out. I mean, if you're unkind, someone is ultimately going to be unkind to you. If you're uh, uh, not loving, someone else will be not loving to you. Yes, what goes around comes around for a profoundly simple reason. There's no one else here but you. <laughs> ultimately, you're the only one that is. Right, so, yeah. of course, what you do to another, you do to yourself because there's no one else in the room. The mistake that human beings make is imagining that there's someone else. This is not a mistake that God makes. Do you believe as well that souls, when they come down here, uh, choose ahead of time uh, major events that will happen in, in their life? Or no. we have total free will? No, I, I, no, I do not believe that, that souls choose the events that will happen in their lives. I think that souls are like an artist with a palette. I think that, that the artist... Uh, puts the colors on the palette, but he does not decide ahead of time uh, how he's going to use the brush on the canvas and precisely with each stroke and every single line what the painting is going to look like. Rather, the artist takes the colors from the palette, applies it to the canvas in such a way that the picture produces itself even as the artist goes along. And in fact, artists can change their mind in the middle of a painting, and often do, and out comes something other than what they had originally conceived. That is, in fact, the nature of art. I think that life, therefore, is the greatest art of all. I think that the soul does give itself the colors for its palette, but it does not say what kind of picture it's going to create. Rather, it uses physicality to present a process by which the picture emerges through the process of life itself. So I haven't decided years and years and years ago or before I came down here that you and I would have this telephone conversation today. No, no. I didn't sit up there, you know, before I was born going, you know what, I think I'll have a guy named Kevin from the UK give me a call <laughs> in the middle of April of 2000. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, 
that's what I'll do. Yeah. Then I'll be able to get my ideas out. No, see, I didn't do that. Sure. What I did do was say, I'm going to give Neil, the, the human being, the palette color called communication. I'm going to give him, in human terms, the talent to communicate thoughts and ideas. That'll be one of his colors on his palette. He has that talent. What he does with it when he gets there is his business. And so we have contrived the person called Kevin and the person called Neil to be on this interview today together. And that contrivance is a result of the creations that we produce in our life moment to moment, day to day, hour to hour, out of which emerges our definition of ourselves. Every act is an act of self-definition. I do have one final question, though, Neil, um, because we're coming up to the end of the hour here. That is... um with what's going on in the, in the financial system right now, okay, do you have any knowledge, maybe, of the, of the eventual outcome of the changing balances between the, the, the pores and the, and the, and the, and the have-nots and the, the sort of controlling elite of the world with, you know, with regards to the collapse of the financial system? Where is this going? Where do you see it going? I, I wouldn't uh, pretend to have a prognostication with regard to that. Nor, for that matter, in the financial sense, do I care. Mm. I think I think that in the larger sense, humanity is recreating itself. I think that we are redefining who we are through the redefinition of our goals, our objectives, and our values. And I think that what's going to happen here in the next 10 years yeah. is that we are going to recreate our system of human values and move away from a system that was destined from the beginning to be non-sustainable because it was based on a very shaky foundation. The foundation of the old system was bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more. And that system was never a sustainable system to begin with. The greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the greatest inner peace, the greatest sense of fulfillment in life, in fact, does not come from bigger, better, more. Bigger stuff, better stuff, more stuff. It does not come from that at all. It comes from the place within us that we call in human language, love. And love has nothing to do with how big it is, the car you drive, or the house in which you live. I would conclude with this with an experience that I had 20 years ago. I had the opportunity uh, two decades ago to visit many, many places on the continent of Africa. This was in the 70s. Now it's, I guess, it's 30 years ago now yeah. that I think about it. And I, was, I, and I went all over the continent of Africa as part of the work that I was then doing. I saw people. I saw entire communities, civilization. I saw a whole, a whole strata of life, if you will, that was much different from the life that I knew here in the United States of America. I saw people who, by my measure, by my measure, had very little. They were below poverty. I wouldn't even describe it as poverty level, way below poverty level, wearing very little, living in mud huts in some cases, or little adobe dwellings with the one source of electricity for the entire house. There's no point in going into the description. It was far, far different from anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And when I walked into those environments in places like Ouagadougou in Upper Volta, which no longer exists as a country, I think it's now called Burkina Faso. Yeah. But when I went into Upper Volta and into Ouagadougou and saw this, I thought my first thought was, oh my, oh, these poor people. Wow, you mean people actually live this way? But that was before I spent a few minutes with them. Here's what I discovered. They were the happiest, in some cases most carefree, most joy-filled, and most loving human beings I had met in the entirety of my life dancing in circles with their family and friends every night, celebrating human humanity and being human in every way you could imagine. Yeah. Their sexuality was openly expressed. Their love for each other was openly shared. Nobody stole things from each other. There were, there were no such thing as rapes and violence in some of those villages. I'm not saying it didn't appear anywhere. I'm saying that it was far, far, far less than anything I saw in New York City higher degree of happiness and a lower level of crime and violence. And I walked away from that experience and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do these people know that I don't know? Oh, I see. 
It's not about the penthouse apartment. It's not about the, the Rolls Royce sitting in the driveway. It's not about the watch on my wrist and how many diamonds there are on my finger. It's not about how much stock I own or how high up in the company I rise. It's not about any of that. It's about looking across the room at my family and my friends and my neighbors and those around me and simply loving them yeah. and loving life. Yeah, we've, uh, we've not got it quite right, have we, um, unfortunately? Um, but, um, but it's the a process, though, isn't it? Out, the financial meltdown is the process by which we are readjusting yeah, yeah. Well, I to the awareness that is now occurring to more of us. Yeah, yeah. That's what's happening yeah. as humanity continues to evolve in the next grandest version of itself. Okay, Neil. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and um, I'd welcome you back in the future. Thank you very much. It was a joy to be here. Thanks for asking. If you'd like to find out more on Neil Donald Walsh, go to www.neildonaldwalsh.com or go to my site, www.themoreshow.co.uk and look up Neil Walsh under past guests. So until next time, be safe. <laughs>